You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. At oral arguments, Supreme Court justices on both sides of the ideological spectrum signaled they're inclined to let Kentucky's Republican Attorney General take over the defense of a law that would sharply restrict abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. The case is the opening act in a Supreme Court term that could eviscerate the constitutional right to an abortion. Joining me is Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, how many abortion clinics are there in Kentucky? There are two. They're both in Louisville, and there's only one, the EMW clinic that's at the center of the Supreme Court case, where you can get an abortion after 14 weeks of pregnancy. And you went down there. Tell us about what it's like outside and going into the clinic. Well, they perform abortions five days a week, and every day, I was only there for one, but I'm told it's every day uh, there are protesters out there. There are people, uh, usually a group of Catholics who are praying the rosary. There are people with signs. On the day I was there, there was a preacher who had a microphone who was uh, using that to amplify his voice. And, you know, inevitably, when patients start to come at 8 o'clock, there will be a group of people that uh, try to talk to them and try to persuade them not to go inside. I can imagine it's very intimidating to go into the clinic. Does it stop people from trying to get abortions? Do you know? Not based on what I saw. There, you know, when I talked to some of the uh, anti-abortion protesters out there, they did say there were examples. There are people they can point to that chose not to have an abortion. And, and one woman even showed me a picture of a woman with her family and, and said that she had been talked out of having an abortion. Uh, it, it's not clear how much of that actually happens at the actual site there, um, but, but folks say it does happen at least some of the time. Does the clinic do anything to protect the women who are arriving there? 
Well, on the morning I was there, there were about a half a dozen escorts, and, and what they say they do is basically just just try to create space. When when a woman parks her car, they might they go up to her and say, "Would you like me to to walk in with you?" And they're that just they walk alongside her and just serve as a little buffer. There's there's no physical contact that I've seen between escorts and and protesters, but you know they, they give her somebody to walk alongside into the building. And Kentucky has passed how many laws in the last four years? How many anti-abortion laws? There are about a dozen laws that Kentucky has passed. It's a state that has mostly been controlled by uh, Republicans, although there is now a Democratic governor. This particular law was actually passed overwhelmingly by the Kentucky General Assembly. So tell us about this law that's at the center of the Supreme Court case. Yeah, what this law does is basically ban abortion after about 15 weeks of pregnancy. It targets the most common technique used at that stage called uh, dilation and evacuation, or DNA. And that procedure involves pulling the fetus out in a way that sometimes causes the tissue to separate. And what this law says is you can't, in quote, dismember the fetus unless it is already dead. And uh, abortion providers say there's really no safe and effective way of performing an abortion uh, if if you have to first make sure that the, the fetus is dead. So essentially, this law makes it all but impossible to have an abortion after 15 weeks. So now, what is the issue at the Supreme Court? So the issue is actually, it's really important, but it's a a somewhat technical issue. It has to do with the effort by the Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron to take over the litigation. What happened was because of the changeover in the 2019 election in Kentucky, it meant that the governor's office went from being Republican to Democrat, and the attorney general's office went the other way, went from being Democrat to Republican. And after a federal appeals court struck this law down as being unconstitutional, the Democratic administration of Governor Andy Bashir decided not to press any further appeals. And the new Republican attorney general, Daniel Cameron, said, I'd like to intervene and take over the defense of the law. The Federal Appeals Court, the Sixth Circuit, said, no, you can't do that at such a late stage in the litigation. Cameron went up to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is considering whether Cameron can be allowed to intervene and press further appeals, possibly including a Supreme Court appeal. Justices from both sides of the ideological spectrum seem concerned about the same thing. The concern seemed to be that nobody would be allowed to defend this law, that you have a state where you have some officials who want to be able to keep pressing appeals, and the lower court didn't let them do that. So even among some of the Democratic-appointed justices, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, there was concern that the lower court ruling would bar the state from further defending the law. That is, of course, even though Justices Breyer and Kagan almost certainly would say this law is unconstitutional based on Supreme Court precedent. What reason did the appellate court give for saying that the attorney general couldn't step in? It's somewhat technical, but essentially the Sixth Circuit said he did it too late. So the attorney general in the form of Andy Bashir, who is now the governor, at an early stage in, in the litigation had said, I'm not going to defend the law and I will abide by any judgment. Then the case went forward without Bashir defending it. The state lost at the district court level. The health secretary, a Republican, appealed up to the Sixth Circuit. Still, the attorney general's office is not involved. And then after the Sixth Circuit ruled, that's when Daniel Cameron, after he had been elected, said, I want to intervene now and I want to seek 
review by a bigger panel of judges, so-called en banc review at the Sixth Circuit, and the, the Sixth Circuit said, no, it's too late for you to jump in and do that. This is a procedural question. Why might this case be important in the battle over abortion rights? Well, it's important because if if Cameron loses in this case, this Kentucky law is void. It, it, it can't be defended anymore. So it matters just in terms of this particular law. Um, you know, it, it's also, you know, a bit of a prelude. This is going to be a huge Supreme Court term for abortion rights. Uh, in December, they're going to hear arguments on this Mississippi law. Mississippi is asking the Supreme Court to, to gut or even overturn the Roe v. Wade ruling. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the Texas law floating around out there, too, and, and the court might be asked to, to get back involved in that case. That involves a, a six-week a ban after six weeks uh, of pregnancy. And so this case you know, could give us some signals as to what the court's going to do on those, on those bigger questions. Uh, certainly, it's starting to whet people's appetite for this, uh, this big topic of abortion. It seems a little bit convenient that you have that Mississippi case and then you have the Texas case and this case all sort of coming to a head at the same time. Is that just coincidence? It's not. You know, we have a much more conservative Supreme Court right now. There's a lot of reasons to think they will be more receptive to abortion restrictions than the court has been. Uh, and, And because of that, people who are opposed to abortion are passing more laws at the state level, filing more appeals, uh, pushing the issue because they think they have a real chance to to change the law, maybe even to go as far as as overturning Roe v. Wade, but certainly giving states more ability to enact tough abortion restrictions. From all indications, the justices are going to rule that the Kentucky Attorney General has to be allowed to defend the law? Yeah, it sure seems like that's what's going to happen, that they will say that that he can take over the defense, press further appeals. Uh, It seems like that is going to get at least six votes and maybe as many as eight. And tell us, according to polls, most Americans still support a right to abortion. What do they feel about restrictions? They do support the general right to an abortion, but they also support restrictions. Now, what exactly that means, uh, you know, is a, is a bit in the details, and it might depend on how the question is asked. Um, even though uh, in this abortion debate at the Supreme Court, uh, sometimes it might seem like, seem like both sides are very absolutist, a lot of people in the American public uh, uh, are, are somewhere in the middle and, and do think that there should be some right to end the pregnancy, but not an absolute right. And also in your story, you talk about how while in the U.S., states in recent years have been enacting more and more laws to try to restrict abortion rights or even ban them, while in other countries, Catholic countries, they've been going in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's it, it's quite remarkable uh, that this is happening. You know, sometimes you see the United States moving in tandem with, with other countries, but uh, Mexico, Ireland both have started allowing or at least giving more freedom for women to, to end pregnancies. Um, in the U.S., uh, again, in large part, or certainly in part because of the knowledge that you have a, a more conservative Supreme Court, the anti-abortion uh, forces are certainly uh, on the march. So while I have you, you know, last term when it was over the phone, the oral arguments, you had the Chief Justice going 
in order of seniority for the questioning. So it was very ordered, unlike the hot bench we might have seen in the past. What's it like this term when they're back in the courtroom? It's a bit of a hybrid. It's not totally back to the the free-for-all that we used to have, um, uh, where you didn't know who was going to jump in when. Um, Curiously, in I believe every argument so far, in every half of each argument, the first question has been asked by Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, and, you know, he's a guy who went a decade without asking a question previously, didn't like participating in oral arguments. It seems as though the justices have all collectively agreed that they're going to let Justice Thomas ask the first question. Uh, and apparently that uh, he's, he's now comfortable doing that. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, it's changed the dynamic of the argument just because you get to hear a little bit of what he thinks during it. And then at the end, the chief justice says, basically, anybody got any more questions? <laughs> yeah. And he's he tries to do that in seniority order, which means that when he's on the bench, he's looking back and forth. First, Justice Thomas, do you have anything? Then Justice Breyer, do you have anything? It can be a little bit awkward, uh, but in general, the arguments, what it's done is it has let all the justices, or it seems like it's let all the justices know that they will have a chance to ask their question. They may just have to be patient and wait till the end. And how many people are in the courtroom itself? It has been, uh, you know, something south of maybe 80 or so. Uh, depends on the case a little bit. Uh, it's basically just uh, the lawyers who are arguing, uh, the lawyer who's arguing and one other lawyer on each side, uh, a, a few members of the press, the, the justices, law clerks, and a few other court officials and special guests. General public is excluded. You know, at most, maybe the courtroom is a a quarter filled, uh, a lot less than in a normal argument. Thanks so much for being on the show, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. It's a closely watched case with implications for how states manage natural resources nationwide. 
Mississippi claims that Tennessee's pumping of an interstate aquifer is vacuuming slow-moving underground water into the Memphis area that could not occur naturally, increasing costs of Mississippi's water pumping. At the oral arguments, the justices cast doubt on Mississippi's claim for damages. Joining me is Robin Craig, a professor at USC Gould School of Law. Robin, tell us about the issue here. So in Mississippi versus Tennessee, uh, we have an interstate dispute over a shared water resource. That's not new. What's new is two things. First of all, this is the first case to reach the Supreme Court um, arguing about groundwater in an aquifer. And second, what's uh, interesting about this case is that Mississippi is not arguing the traditional argument that states make in this situation, which is for equitable apportionment of the aquifer uh, among the states that share it, but rather it's uh, arguing a territorial claim basically asserting that because Memphis is pumping so much water and creating a cone of depression in the aquifer that crosses into Mississippi's territory, uh, that Mississippi should be entitled to uh, some fairly large damages. So basically, Mississippi's arguing that Tennessee is stealing its groundwater. Was there one issue that dominated the oral arguments? Probably what the correct cause of action should be. Uh, there, there were really two issues that came up in oral argument. One was what the justices should do with the case if they dismissed it. But the main one was, does Mississippi really have a territorial sovereignty claim to the groundwater, or should this really be an equitable apportionment case? And, um, you know, it was interesting because uh, the justices were interested both in how to distinguish Mississippi's potential claim factually from things that go on uh, with surface water, uh, but they were also interested in the limits of their equitable apportionment jurisdiction. So, uh, they didn't seem to want to go with Mississippi, but they were also a little bit concerned about how many of these groundwater cases they might get in the future. Explain equitable apportionment. Okay, equitable apportionment is the doctrine that the Supreme Court made up to accommodate uh, cases where States share natural resources. It's usually water, uh, an interstate river, for example. And the uh, one state, it's almost always the downstream state, is complaining that the upstream state is taking too much of the resource. Uh, and so equitable apportionment, states come to the, the Supreme Court through original jurisdiction, so they don't have to go through the trial courts. Uh, and then um, ask the court to basically divide the resource among the states that share it. Uh, with water in particular, the Supreme Court recognized early on that having access to water, having a water supply is an important aspect of state sovereignty. So equitable apportionment at its core is a way to accommodate conflicting claims of uh, sovereignty over resources 
uh, without having the states go to war with each other. At one point, did the justices question whether this was actually water or not, this groundwater? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts actually uh, got into an interesting uh, little conversation about the science of groundwater um, and his understanding that when water is sitting in an aquifer, or at least some kinds of aquifers, it's not really just a pool of water sitting on bedrock. It's mud or silt or, uh, in this case, water mixed with sand. And and so he he asked, is that is that really water? Um, you know, or is it mud or silt? And so you pull it up to the surface. Um, and uh, uh, counsel for Tennessee, I think, uh, quite properly answered, you can withdraw it as relatively pure water. And in fact, groundwater is some of the purest water you can withdraw, which is why uh, cities like to use it for drinking water. So, uh, but yes, it was, it was an interesting question. Didn't seem to concern most of the rest of the court, but that was an interesting bit of questioning there. And Justice Sonia Sotomayor seemed sort of exasperated with Mississippi for bringing these damages. She said, both courts told you you've got to seek equitable apportionment. Now, this is the third time you've done this. When is enough enough? Exactly. Um, and, and that goes to that second issue of what if the court is not going to allow Mississippi to have its territorial claim, what should it do with the case? Uh, this case has been going on for a while, uh, 16 years. Uh, Mississippi has made a, t a couple of attempts to make this argument. And um, so Justice Sotomayor was getting uh, at an issue that a lot of the justices asked about in one form or another. Of if the, the court says Mississippi can't bring this claim, does it dismiss the case with prejudice? Uh, does it say, well, you never raised equitable apportionment, so if you want to raise that, file a new case? Or does it let Mississippi go back and uh, just amend its complaint and add an equitable apportionment claim? Um, so, uh, you know, like I said, there was a fair amount of questioning on that uh, to various degrees. Uh, there were a, a couple of justices who seemed a little more sympathetic to Mississippi, saying, hey, you want to preserve that claim, don't you, if we decide against you on the law? Um, I, there were a couple of justices who seemed uh, willing to grab the procedural out and maybe just be able to dismiss this case on the grounds that Mississippi had not asked to amend its complaint, and Mississippi has steadfastly refused to allege an equitable apportionment claim. It's like, okay, you know, if you decide you want to bring that claim, fine, but you're going to have to file a whole new lawsuit to do it. So uh, that that's one of the things that will be interesting to see is what they actually decide to do with the, the disposition of the case if they rule against Mississippi. A court-appointed special master earlier ruled that Mississippi should have pursued a claim for equitable apportionment. Why doesn't Mississippi want to pursue that equitable apportionment? What would it get from equitable apportionment? 
Well, Mississippi's view of equitable apportionment, apportionment is it's mainly a prospective remedy. Um, it tells the states how to behave in the future, who's entitled to how much water or how much pumping from an aquifer. Uh, and what it really wants is damages. It, it, it thinks its sovereignty has been intruded upon. Um, it's sort of the state-level equivalent of a trespass, and it wants those damages. And under equitable apportionment claims, there are ways to get damages, but um, not until the offending state has clearly taken more than its fair share which usually requires that you've divided up the resource in the first place. So um, that's the difference from Mississippi's perspective. Has Mississippi suffered any damages here? Not according to Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Aside from that injury or or perceived injury to its sovereignty, uh, there seems to be plenty of water in the aquifer. Uh, Mississippi also has pumps along the border. Everybody seems to be getting all the water they need. So not in the typical sense of an injury in these cases. Uh, So um, another reason why Mississippi doesn't want to go the equitable apportionment route, because uh, before a state can actually get the court to equitably apportion a, a water body, it has to show pretty substantial injury from what the other states are doing. And uh, I, I have seen no facts that would indicate that Mississippi could make that showing. The Biden administration and a bipartisan group of states sided with Tennessee. Why did they side with Tennessee? Pretty much everyone is siding with <laughs> Tennessee. Uh, I, I, I think... Uh, You know, the the states are mostly Western states who have uh, been involved in either equitably apportioning rivers or interstate compacts to govern rivers. And even those interstate compacts, however, tend to be based on the background principles of equitable apportionment, that all states are co-equal sovereigns and they should be able to share in the resource. Uh, and and so co- coming up with a completely new rule for groundwater uh, has the potential to upend um, how states think about sharing these resources in general. Uh, I, it, the other complication that could come up and is increasingly coming up is in these agreements about surface water, uh, it, is, it is becoming increasingly clear for a lot of them that groundwater pumping can affect the surface water as well. And so there's there's been a few interstate compact cases before the court in the last few years where um, nothing was going wrong with the surface water per se, except that groundwater pumping in one state or the other was affecting the surface water. There was so much groundwater pumping uh, going on that it was actually drawing down the surface water And so these cases have been coming up of whether that hydrologically connected groundwater is part of the original compact. Uh, Now, to some extent, that depends on what the compact originally said. But um, if the Supreme Court suddenly announces a completely different rule for shared groundwater, 
then eventually we're going to run into the problem um, not only of, of how to apply that rule as a practical matter, which is part of what the justices were getting at in this case, but also what to do in these other cases when it turns out that the groundwater and the surface water are so intimately connected that we really need to do uh, really do need to wrap in the groundwater to effectuate the surface water uh, agreement. So there are a lot of complications that, that could come up with that from that. Uh, but I think a large part of it is also, you know, equitable apportionment isn't easy, but we understand it. We know how it works. We can deal with it. Um, don't throw us a whole new set of rules uh, in these cases or these situations that are already fairly complicated to negotiate. So it seems pretty clear from the oral arguments that Mississippi is going to lose. But is the question what the justices decide to do with the case? I think so, yes. Uh, I agree with you. I think it's pretty clear that Mississippi is going to lose. Um, The interesting question for me is how much more the court decides it wants to say. Um, I this, this actually could be one of the shortest Supreme Court opinions in an interstate water case ever written. If the court <laughs> basically just wants to say Mississippi has alleged this territorial claim to groundwater, there is no legal basis for that claim. It has failed to state a cause of action, case dismissed. The opinion really could be that short. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if the justices decide instead that they want to get into some of the other issues that were raised, start to talk about the role of state sovereignty. There was there was an interesting debate that came up at the end of the, the case uh, where the United States had one view of state sovereignty and the role of equitable apportionment and Mississippi had a very different view, you know, if they want to get into that, if they want to get into the limits of equitable apportionment itself, trying to put some uh, bumpers on that doctrine to stem what what some of the justices were clearly fearing would be a a flood of these groundwater cases, um, then it could get to be a very interesting opinion and could really uh, influence interstate water law for probably the rest of the century. Um, so uh, I, if I had to put money on it, I, I think they're going to go with the shorter opinion and save the complicated questions for when they actually get a complaint uh, asking for equitable apportionment of an aquifer. But you never know. They, they might decide that they, they want to say something about those other issues in the process. It seems like there have been a few of these water rights cases between states. Is there a reason why they're popping up now? I think so, yes. The, the cases that are, are coming up now are eastern cases. So the big one last term was Florida versus Georgia, which has been going on forever. Um, that's a debate. Um, you know, the, the Western, well, there actually was a very uh, early uh, interstate equitable apportionment case between uh, New York and New Jersey. But aside from that, most of the, the big cases have involved Western states, Western rivers, uh, 
dry country, very easy to overuse. Those rivers overappropriate them, take too much water out. Uh, but the, the eastern states, I think, are starting to run into some of the same issues that uh, their water supplies aren't as secure as they used to be. Um, there are big cities that need more water than local supplies actually allow for. Um, and, and we're also getting some situations in the western states where the agreements that were hashed out in some cases a century ago are now being tested by new climatological conditions. Um, that they, they didn't put in provisions to deal with uh, a warming climate or, you know, bigger flood disasters or, or whatnot. And so I think for both reasons, um, uh, the 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 agreements we thought were settled decades ago are suddenly becoming more problematic again. And we have a whole new set of states that are running into interstate water issues uh, in ways that they traditionally haven't. And uh, so I, I think we're going to keep seeing, uh, you know, a few of these cases sprinkled in uh, before the Supreme Court uh, most terms going forward. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Robin. That's Professor Robin Craig of USC Gould School of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. <laughs> 